welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology, produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Mythleen Maher and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. Hello, dear anthropology enthusiasts. This is Timothy Neal reporting to you from Nam, Melbourne, where several of the Conversations in Anthropology crew are currently sheltering in place in our respective homes, now home offices. This episode is one of our thematic episodes and centers on two interviews with two different scholars who share an interest in algorithms, Nick Siever and Tao Fan. Algorithms have been getting a lot of attention lately, whether in academia or in the news media, though it's often unclear what exactly they are, let alone what these things do. By the book, an algorithm is a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer, and that's a dictionary definition. But of course, many of us know algorithms as social actors, as arbiters of social realities. Algorithms name the calculative crunching behind the recommendations we get from media streaming services, the options we're given in a search engine when we put in our key terms. Algorithms are often at work now when an application for parole is successful or not, or when a job application is ranked to be viewed by a hiring committee. They're entangled in the making of everyday social worlds. And so scholarship on algorithmic justice and the ethics of artificial intelligence are signs of how anthropologists and others have begun to inquire into the values underpinning these powerful processes or sets of rules, and with them, the institutions and people that make them possible. Thanks, Tim, for that introductory appetite wetter to what's at stake with algorithms. And hello, listeners. It's Mythley here, coming to you from Aotearoa, New Zealand, to introduce the first part of this episode, which finds Tim and Matt Barlow in conversation with Nick Siever, who's zooming in from lockdown in the US at his energizing best. Nick is assistant professor in the anthro department at Tufts University. He also teaches into the SDS program there. Nick is, in his own words, an anthropologist who studies how people make sense of culture using technology. I hope you enjoy this riveting chat about Nick's study of algorithms, the business of channeling users' attention digitally and his project emerging out of all this on attention itself as a virtue and value in contemporary life. So Nick, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD study of music recommender companies? Yeah, so I did my PhD at uh, University of California, Irvine, uh, on a project that I came up with what feels like now a million years ago, but was about 10 years ago. Uh, which was a study of uh, companies that were making music recommender systems. So anything to sort of automatically give recommended music to people. So these are the systems that are used by companies like Spotify or Pandora. If you're in the US, Apple, everyone sort of has one of these. I mean, it's much more familiar to people now than it was then. But yeah, so I set out to say, you know, how are these companies Uh, classifying cultural material with computers? How are they dealing with questions of taste and technology and all these things that are actually of concern to many anthropologists? Uh, How are they dealing with those questions in their own in their own work? So that was the thing that sort of got me excited at the beginning, because you had all these people who knew that they were dealing with cultural stuff. And often in sort of anthropology of science, anthropology of tech, our job is to remind people who don't think that their jobs involve culture 
that the thing they're doing is cultural. You know, you say, oh, your particle physics actually has culture in it, or your, you know, bridge building has culture in it. And in this case, they say, of course, my thing has culture in it. It's, it's music. Uh, so I was curious, basically, uh, what do you do? What do these people do when they know that? Did you kind of make sense to them as, a, as, an, as an anthropologist? That's always a funny question because we are, get really hung up on it as anthropologists when we're out in the world where we're like, nobody understands us. I wish that my uh, interlocutors in the field would, would understand us. I would say that they did sometimes on my terms, right? They always understood what I was doing in some terms. And I think that's actually was a very useful thing for me to realize as I was going along was that uh, everyone I talked to thought that they understood me and what they understood uh, was different. So for instance, you would find someone who said, oh yeah, you're an anthropologist. We have this particular problem. Uh, we don't have enough diversity uh, in our company. And that's an anthropology problem, right? And I would say, well, I mean, it's not, not an anthropology problem, but it's not only an anthropology problem. Uh, and so, you know, those people would understand anthropology to be about things like, you know, race and gender uh, and other social contexts of their work that they didn't think of as being like essential to what they were doing, but, you know, maybe important if they thought that those things were important to them. So that would happen sometimes. In other cases, they would, they, you know, this is before we had a big discourse about algorithmic bias like we do today. And so a lot of people would start to recognize me as someone who helped them find biases then. So they would say like, oh yeah, you're the guy who can help us realize that our algorithm is doing this thing that it shouldn't be doing. Uh, and that wasn't really also either what I thought I was, was, was there for, but I didn't quite know what, what I was there for. That's the fun thing about a PhD project is they say, what's an anthropologist do? And you say, I'm sort of figuring it out uh, also by doing this. Yeah. Did you have an, an in? What was your, I think one of the things that's, that's kind of not all that comprehensively covered in the studying up literature is just like when you, uh, anthropologists have gone and studied kind of classical field sites, whether that's in Papua New Guinea or, or wherever, they have an in because their supervisor went there, whereas people who study up don't tend to have that introduction. So how did you come to be introduced to this recommended company? Yeah, so it took me a really long time to get anything that we would call access in a classic sense. It was maybe three years of, of trying to get into uh, the one particular company where I ended up spending uh, the most time. Um, but what I did uh, in the interim, and this is where, you know, people get sort of clever with their anthropological and ethnographic work, uh, is I realized that what I was interested in wasn't like, you know, this one company. I was interested in a sort of scene and a set of companies in uh, a range of people who are working on this stuff. So what I did was I would go to conferences a lot, um, especially these academic conferences where there was a sort of overlap of industry and academic research. So there were two in my case, one was a sort of music and computers conference and one was a sort of recommender systems of all sorts conference. Uh, and I would go to these conferences, you know, every year when I could, usually trying to get some sort of student rate or discounted thing because I wasn't doing it in the normal computer science-y way. And eventually I just was the person who was at all these conferences with other people and I would see them over and over again. And it, literally I just went until someone asked me to go, to get to come to their company. They said, do you want to come and study us? And I, I maybe was a little bit too shy or I'm like a vampire and you have to invite me into your house <laughs> before I'm allowed to go. Uh, but it took that. I took, it took me a really long time to, to do it. You mentioned uh, before the interest in bias and algorithms, which is, is something I'm really interested in. In your work, you've brought attention to this kind of common framing that we're getting of algorithms as kind of this separate, inhuman actor, autonomous, 
we are being governed by the algorithm. The algorithm decides, you know, makes decisions for us. And something I've found really interesting about your work is you emphasize like this is this is a recapitulation of some very old themes. And also for anthropologists, a recapitulation of some old themes of emphasizing technology is always social and human. So why don't you talk a little bit about that, about uh, the kind of common framing of algorithms, but also how it's totally not reflective of how algorithms are actually made. Yeah, that's a great question. So some important context for this is that the, the academic and popular discourse about algorithms, I think, as a lot of people know, uh, is really overheated and has been blown up uh, a lot in recent uh, in not in recent years, over the last like 10 years, right? It's become like a really huge thing um, from being a relatively niche interest uh, a decade ago. Uh, and in the course of that, the dominant themes of the way people talk about algorithms have really changed. Uh, so when I was sort of getting going, uh, what we had was a pretty lively discourse about algorithms as autonomous agents uh, in the public sphere. People saying, well, algorithms are coming to take your job. They're going to do this, that, and the other thing on their own. Um, and then in academia, and not in anthropology, because anthropologists weren't generally studying this, but you know, media studies, communication, um, STS, uh, we had people writing about algorithms as a sort of new form of autonomized rationality, right? They were going to do something to you. Um, and that was sort of interesting because that was a real resurgence of what we would call technological determinism in any other context. Um, and it was pretty untrue to what I was seeing, at least in the case of, of music recommendation. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the way that, say, you know, pretend you were talking about, actually, let's say not say music, let's say Netflix is just like a company that's prototypically has a recommender system. Um, you know, you look at Netflix and you say, how does the Netflix recommender work? Well, uh, there are some papers that exist where people talk about different methods. There was famously the Netflix challenge, a big contest where people came up with, with new methods for Netflix in the uh, sort of early 2000s. Uh, and we know in broad strokes what's going on there. But what's important to know about companies that are making software today uh, is that all of them are using these sort of agile and lean development methods where they have very quick um, revision cycles and constant editing. Uh, so any algorithmic system is being changed all the time by people who are working on it. Um, and those people are super, super responsive to things that happen in, in the world. So if you wanna talk about algorithms as autonomous agents, you have this problem, which is that whenever an, an algorithm changes in a substantial way, it's often not because of the algorithm per se, but because of the people who designed it, um, making some change on purpose. So my line has been, ever since I sort of came to realize this was what was going on, uh, is that the logic of algorithms at the end of the day is a, a human logic. It's not this sort of unknowable thing because algorithms are emplaced within institutions, right? So as soon as the Netflix algorithm starts doing something wacky, uh, Netflix was going to stop it. Netflix is going to change what it does. They're not going to let it start recommending random stuff just because the algorithm said so. They're going to turn it off. Uh, and as long as you have that person who's turning it off, you have a human um, logic in the loop. How do you get from algorithms to attention, like in your more recent work? So, yeah, so I have, uh, I'm in the process of finishing up fingers crossed, this book uh, about the work on algorithmic recommender systems. Uh, and I was, you know, looking around for a second project as one as one does. And I 
don't really, as with all good ethnographic projects, I don't remember how I came up with the idea. But at some point, I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to teach a class called How to Pay Attention uh, as, you know, a seminar about ethnographic methods and how we pay attention to things in the world, but also about, like, the attention economy and all of this sort of attention as a cultural concern stuff. And that was really where it started for me. I thought, oh, that would be cool. Um, and I, so I started teaching this class. I pulled together a syllabus and I've actually taught it for three or four years now. Uh, and it's been this really interesting thing where I read with my wonderful undergraduate students, mostly seniors, a bunch of work, a lot of it anthropological, a lot of it history of science, just about attention as a kind of value uh, over time. And it connects in a sort of direct way to recommender systems because, um, you know, they're part of this attention economy. They work on people's attentions. They're optimized to capture your attention. I have an article uh, uh, in the Journal of Material Culture called Recommender Systems as Traps, which is about the way that people who design those systems talk about them uh, as sort of mechanisms for capturing user attention. And so I just thought, hey, let's, 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 let's branch out. And as I kept going, I realized there was so much more to talk about, uh, about the sort of role that attention has in, as an explanatory concept uh, culturally, uh, but also how it's mediated through technical infrastructures. In a uh, conference that I went to that was part of a music festival, I remember one of the speakers saying in, in reference to recommender companies that um, you're either programming or you're being programmed. Does that ring any bells for you with regards to recommender companies and attention? Yeah, I mean, so I'm I have I have the sort of typical anthropological sin of 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 charity towards my interlocutors, which is that I think of them as you know it's certainly the engineers that I that I mostly worked with who worked on these systems. I think of them as people who uh, very much are interested in helping the users of their systems and trying to facilitate things for people. Um, of course, I'm you know I'm I'm fairly critical of them as well. Uh, but I don't usually go whole hog into the like, oh, these systems are sort of running your lives. They're going to take over your autonomous mind. They're going to make you do things that you don't that you don't really want to do. They impinge on your freedom. Um, I do think that that can be an, an outcome of these sort of distributed systems of what can happen. You know, when you um, uh, 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 when you have recommender systems and certain commercial incentives and all of this in play. Uh, what I have been really interested in in my work on attention now, actually, is that uh, what we've seen, again, in sort of popular discourse, particularly in the U.S., but I think it's sort of a global phenomenon, uh, is a bunch of uh, people who used to work in tech companies and used to work in algorithmic personalization coming out as very strong critics of what's sometimes called behavioral design or persuasive design, right? So YouTube autoplay being designed to make you keep watching videos and so on. Um, and so we have this very lively critique um, by people who used to work in these in these domains. They're sort of the leaders of it in the in the public sphere. And as an anthropologist, what I'm interested in is not so much mounting the critique myself, but seeing what critiques are out there in the world and sort of looking at what terms they work by and what terms they might share. Uh, with their objects of critique. So what you see a lot of uh, in these uh, among these critics, and these are uh, organizations like the Center for Humane Technology uh, and these sorts of, of, of institutions, uh, you see a lot of behaviorism. You see a lot of like, uh, you know, YouTube is basically has like you in a Skinner box and they're doing experiments on you with your mind and you're not your own agent. And I've been working on this idea about this 
critique, and this is something I'm, I'm going to be working on for uh, the next year or so on with a with a fellowship. I've been working on um, this movement that I'm calling attentional humanism, which is this idea that, you know, all these people are coming out in defense of the human against technology. And in this world, technology weirdly means like companies like Facebook and Google and Netflix. It doesn't mean technology in a general sense. Um, but whenever an anthropologist of technology sees a human technology uh, dichotomy, we go, aha, that's something I got to look into. Uh, and so I say, okay, well, what are we doing here? What defines the human against the technological? Uh, and what you see is a kind of attentional humanism. You see this kind of use of, uh, of the human capacity to control our own attention as the thing that makes us human, the thing that makes us not animals, the thing that makes us not um, machines. Uh, and that's really interesting to me because this concept attention, this thing that gets used in so many ways, it's kind of money, it's a kind of prayer, it's a way of caring for people. It also becomes the defining quality of like human dignity and distinctiveness. And so this one idea, this one weirdo, con attention is a very weird concept if you start to think about it, it holds a lot of weight. There's a lot going on in here. So again, anthropologist brain clicking, I was like, we got to look at this, this is the thing. Um, so that's what I'm working on now. I'm trying to sort of trace attention through some of these critical domains, this sort of attentional humanism, um, but also in machine learning worlds that I'm already connected to. So people who are building machine learning models that uh, try to make computers pay attention because that's supposed to be a good thing. What do they do? What does it mean to be good? Why is attention so good? I just wanted to talk a little bit there about your the, the curriculum of the attention course that you mentioned. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the methods that you use about bringing attention into practice. And one of them I'm aware is actually using these attention tracking apps. Can you talk a little bit about, yeah, some of the kinds of ways in which you try to um, kind of, I guess, play with or, 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 or manipulate different kinds of attention in class? Yeah. The class is called How to Pay Attention. And I get a lot of students who come in and they're very um, concerned about their ability to pay attention. And ironically enough, the name of the class is a bit of clickbait because you come out the end and you say, well, I didn't really learn like how to pay attention. I didn't fix the problems that I thought I had. But as usual in anthropology class, I sort of learned how to problematize my problems. I learned how to think, you know, about the, the, the structure of the problems that I thought that I had. Um, they like it in the end, but it's certainly not what they think they were getting into coming in. Um, but what I try to do is to work with that anxiety, to work with the anxiety that people have about their ability to pay attention, about how it is uh, uh, mediated by all of these devices and apps and all the rest of it. And uh, so what we do in this class uh, is a lot of turning the class itself, the structure of the class into the material that we um, are analyzing. And I like doing this in all my classes, but one thing we do, for instance, is we have a week, um, depends on the year, how it's themed, but it's usually themed around distraction and reading. Uh, and so the students uh, will read a bunch of stuff, history of science about the history of distraction as an idea, um, some more recent stuff, uh, media theorists talking about boredom and distraction on social media, and what does it mean to be distracted from something at all? What is it possible? You know, is it paying attention to the wrong thing? Uh, or is it something, is it the opposite of attention? Um, and so what they do when they read that, and they have an exercise like this every week and of different forms is they use a uh, whatever kind of quantified self app they want to try to track their own 
distractions, right? So they'll keep track of the time they're spending reading and they'll make a log of their distractions. And they always come back in the next class and they say, the most distracted thing about this was trying to keep track of my distractions. Uh, and I feel like we end up in this wonderful anthropological moment uh, where we're reflecting on our reflections on how we reflect on ourselves. Uh, and they start to, you know, their heads are like, I don't know what we're doing. Um, but you realize that, you know, the way you think about uh, your attention and understand it is deeply tied up in the tools uh, that you use to attend to the world and also the motivations you have to do it. Uh, and that's something that we build out over the rest of the course. Have you, have you seen any change in attention, whether it's your attention or your students' attention over the last say six months while the world's been going through a kind of upheaval like is is there something is there an insight that you can share with us about how attention is changing at the moment yeah i think that the most obvious thing to me and again this is going to sound like an anthropologist cop about uh, is just that attention is is becoming even more salient right like i can't say that people are collectively experiencing one particular thing that's happening to their attention i think one thing that's clear is that in spite of all of the discourse about oh the the, the pandemic is like the great leveler and everyone is having these experiences that that's not really what's happening right you have some people who are saying oh i'm so bored i'm uh you know i'm in my house alone but i don't have to go to work uh, i have this boredom problem. Other people are saying, I have no childcare. I'm stuck at home. I can't have a second to think to myself. Other people are working uh, uh, in very dangerous settings and are, and are having, you know, fear reactions and all that stuff that's tied up in attention as well. Um, so there's a lot of different things happening uh, in relation to attention. But one of the things that's striking, I think, is that, um, well, this is, a, this is my, my own personal folk anthropological theory of attention. When one talks about attention in the sort of public sphere that I am familiar with, um, what we're often talking about is what we value. And attention is a way of talking about what's important. Uh, so we say, oh, we're not having enough, we don't have enough attention for something, we feel bad about it because attention is, is analogous to, uh, to value. But it gets picked up as this explanatory tool for basically everything. My example used to be, and it has gotten too painful now, um, was that when Donald Trump was elected, which was when I started teaching this, this class around then, um, you, had all these, you had all these attentional explanations for what was going on, and they happened at weirdly different registers, right? So if we think about the psychology of attention, psychology is is traditionally fairly methodologically individualist attention would just be a filter in your head um, that's not very satisfying to an anthropologist um, but what you saw in that moment was this this set of nested explanations like why was this a surprise to americans oh because we the body public weren't paying attention to the right people so there's like weirdly sort of a, a body politic that can pay attention in some way through news media, through whatever, um, and it's composed by its capacity to pay attention. You also had this um, this idea that every scandal that was coming out of the Trump administration was a distraction. And people still sometimes say that. I feel like it's less common now where they're like, oh, it's just a, a endless run of bad things. But um, then it was like, oh no, this is distracting from the real problem, which is over there. So people were talking about political concerns in this language of distraction and attention. And then on top of that, and we actually just saw a resurgence of this lately, was the idea that Trump himself um, has some sort of attention deficit disorder. So a kind of medicalization of the person and a way of explaining people's behavior that people didn't like in, by appealing to a, a methodologically individualist, medicalized model of attention deficit. Um, this has popped up recently. Again, there's this thread that won't die about like Trump abusing stimulant medications that get used for, for attention deficit uh, disorder. 
which, you know, not something that I'm a big fan of medicalizing uh, uh, this stuff, but what it does tell us sort of anthropologically is just the wide range of roles that attention can play as an explanatory device. So one thing that I can see as both relevant to attention and algorithms, uh, and this might be a bit of a, a sidestep, is something like curation. I'm wondering if there's something about the ways in which those things are being curated that is also kind of um, evident in the ways that we teach and in the ways in which we do research and curating our own research projects and our own research agendas. And I'm wondering if there's something that we can dig into there with regards to ethnographic scavenging like you have detailed in, in one of your papers. It's a good question. I'm I'm writing an article about it right now, so I feel very qualified, or I'm revising an article that is in desperate need of help. Um, but so curation uh, in the world of algorithmic recommendation is often figured as the sort of opposite of recommender systems, where you either have an algorithm that's giving you the stuff, uh, or you have a human curator who's giving you the stuff. And in the sort of popular discursive frame that this works in, uh, that human is good and the algorithm is 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 bad. Um, that hasn't always been how it's played out, actually. Uh, sort of in the earlier days of algorithm recommendation, you definitely had a much more lively, like, the algorithm's going to be better because it's science or something like that. And that hasn't really uh, been playing so well uh, in, in, in recent years. But what's been interesting for me is that, of course, again, as a sort of classic anthropology and STS kind of argument, neither curators nor algorithms, whatever those really mean in the present moment, are entirely human or machine, right? Human curators are often relying on algorithmic tools today to like help them put together the things that they're putting together. Uh, algorithms, as we've talked about, have lots of people involved in them. Some of those people's job titles are literally curator. I've talked to people who are called you know, data curators, for instance. It's not the same exact kind of job, but there's this invocation of um, curation as a kind of careful arrangement of things. And right, the word curator is etymologically related to the word care. There's an argument here that people who are doing this are sort of being careful. Um, and care uh, and attention have this special relationship, right? So uh, when we say it's good to care for something, uh, we say it's good to pay, pay attention to something, we sort of mean the same thing. And if you look at, say, feminist theories of care, feminist ethnographies of care, of which there have been a wonderful sort of bloom of them recently, um, one of the key moves in a lot of that literature is to try to separate uh, the idea of care uh, from these positive feelings, because a lot of care work, uh, giving it and receiving it, is not especially positive, right? It's uh, care underpaid care workers, people who don't want to be cared for, people in asylum settings, all sorts of things um, that become a lot easier to understand once you lose this kind of sentimental attachment to care. Um, so an argument that I've been playing with for a while uh, is, is what might this mean for thinking about algorithmic systems, right? If we don't want to take for granted that curation is good and that algorithms are somehow bad, how can we think about kinds of care that are invoked by people working in these systems? Because they absolutely invoke the idea of care all the time. They want to care for their data. They want to care for their users. Um, they don't always succeed or the terms I wish they want to do the caring. You know, they don't. They don't work uh, in the ways that they that that, that people might want. Um, but there is an interest in care of some sort there. Yeah, let me uh, let me let me ask a little bit more about this. So you've written about uh, this work within um, a music recommended company, and part of how you've glossed this is a kind of ethnographic scavenging or polymorphous engagement in order to 
try and get at people's lives. And, and you recall some other people who have studied up, and I guess Hugh Gustafson's uh, work um, with nuclear weapon scientists is, a, is one of the kind of famous examples of this, where you can't actually go to the workplace in a lot of cases, or if you can, that workplace is heavily is a heavily controlled circumstance. You know, there's been a lot of discussion uh, during the current pandemic about, well, how do we continue to scavenge, to use your word, or how do we continue to get access to people's lives from a distance? I guess I was, I, I was kind of curious about, you know, what does this raise for you thinking back on that project about um, opportunities to get, you know, to get into these worlds that are so uh, controlled or constrained? Yeah, that it's a, it's I mean it's always a question and it's always a problem and I think in my mind having fussed about this for a long time I have sort of two concerns that come together uh, uh, when I think about this. One uh, is how do we think about access uh, in the sense of you know dealing with constraints on the kinds of projects that we as anthropologists might want to ideally do, right? So out there in our minds, there's some ideal. Uh, ethnographic project is usually vaguely Malinowskian in shape, uh, and that's what I want to do. And the world keeps stopping me from do it, doing it. Now, in that case, you're you're sort of looking at access questions as an excuse, right? You're saying, well, I can't do the ideal thing, and almost no one can, regardless of whether you want to study, like you know, um, some elite conspiracy theorists who are going to kill you if you see them, uh, or trying to study someone who's out on the street. Uh, you know, there's the world just isn't like that uh, in terms of you know granting immediate access to people who are there. Uh, so on the one on the one hand, there's this 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 uh, interest in making excuses for ourselves and saying, okay, well here's why like it's okay to do this other thing. We don't have to do the Malinowski thing. In my mind, the problem with uh, that framing uh, is that it really positions the thing that we want to know as ethnographers, it positions our goal uh, as the retrieval of some sort of secrets that are held behind some kind of access barrier, right? So what I would get a lot when I was starting this project is people would say like, how does Facebook work or whatever? Uh, as though like the goal of an anthropologist, say if I was like, I mean, anthropologists literally work at Facebook, but like imagine an anthropologist like, trying to break into Facebook, grab the secrets of how Facebook works, pull them out and tell I guess other anthropologists, I don't know, tell the public about what they found. Um, and that seemed to me to be a very um, poor imagination of what we are doing as anthropologists, right? I'm not just, if, if that's my job, I'm just gonna tell you something that someone else knows. It's just, it's just someone else's secret. I'm not analyzing something. I'm not putting a new angle on something. <clears throat> and so I realized that what I was interested in uh, was not so much like the secret that a company was holding at any moment. I think that a lot of ways that we think about secrecy and algorithms today really bias projects towards recovering secrets, black boxes, corporate boundaries, anxieties about anthropological fieldwork, all those things orient us towards this mindset of like, I got to break through, I got to get access. And once I'm there, I'm going to get the stuff. And unfortunately, even if you do get access, once you get in there, you don't get the stuff. There's no stuff. If you, if you show up in the office, as I realized once I showed up in the office, when I was like, I got it, I got the access. There's just a bunch of people there and they're at computers and they're talking to each other quietly through the computer. You don't see what's happening. And not only do you not see what's happening, they don't see what's happening all over the office, right? This kind of like 
semi-permeability of social space, everything happens like a little bit in public, a little bit in secret is normal. It's normal in these companies, but it's also normal even in our like quote unquote Malinowski and field sites. Uh, so a lot of our ideas about access are based on this weird fantasy that if only we could get there, uh, everything would be revealed to us. Uh, and so giving that up has been really important for me, both to feel better about the the, the quality of my field work to realize like, oh, it's not, it's not just me. It's not just that I haven't really gotten in there. It's just like, oh, this is what the social world is like. The so social world is not like a series of walls that you break through. And once you break through them, you just see the stuff. You have to talk to people. You Everything's mediated through these, these, these conversations and relationships. Um, so that was one part of it. And the other part was the distributed part. So I realized I wasn't interested in this, you know, this one company. I want to know about like the world of music recommendation. And once you start to look at the world of music recommendation, instead of whatever one company is doing at one moment in time, things are more public than you think, right? Like they're not going to tell you things like, uh, you know, exactly how their recommenders configured what data they're using right now. Uh, and we sort of shouldn't care because that's going to change. That's going to change next week, right? Like it's certainly different right now than it was in 2014 when I did the bulk of my field work for this. So if all I could tell you was, well, here's how these companies worked in 2014. I wouldn't have much of a I wouldn't have much of a book, but so my interest was instead in what I think of as a sort of more slowly changing cultural background. Right? How do people think about the work that they do? What's important to them? Um, and those are the the kinds of values that are going to guide what they do and what they do when they do something that they haven't done yet. As you're saying, part of how we think of these algorithms, you know. Lately, uh, talking about algorithmic bias, you know, thinking of kind of famous ones like CompStat, crime statistics um, process used by lots of police departments. You know, the discovery of bias in that system is not because a, a researcher went in there and unearthed something. It's because people blew the whistle on it over, you know, many, many years. And certainly social scientists of various stripes were crucial to kind of understanding that discrimination. But it's not like you know, we can extract that secret. I think one thing that's that's striking about something like CompStat or various sort of predictive policing um, algorithms and sentencing and so on uh, is that they are all, they are different from each other, right? So one thing that I think has been useful as the algorithm stuff has really blown up uh, is that we now have enough room to start talking about how these systems aren't all the same, even though they're all quote unquote algorithms, right? So like a Netflix recommender is really not the same thing uh, as the algorithm that predicts whether someone is going to recidivate if they get paroled or something like that. And one of the main reasons they're different is not so much the tech, the techniques that they use, although those can be different too, but the context in which they're used. And this is, again, it sounds sort of boring from an anthropological standpoint, like, oh, the context matters, no fooling. Um, but it does, right? Like the setting in which these systems matter is, is, is substantial. We just saw a news story come out um, in the U.S. at least a, a week or two ago about, you know, the first person who was falsely arrested on the basis of algorithmic profiling. I think it was facial recognition, but I can't remember exactly. But it was someone who had been arrested on the basis of, of an algorithmic sort of testimony. And what was striking about it uh, was that, you know, the story is all, oh, algorithms did it, the algorithms are bad. But of course, an algorithm isn't the thing that like puts out the warrant for arrest and decides that the, the evidentiary standards have been met, right? That's a judge uh, in, in most settings, at least in the United States. Uh, and so what's important here is not so much the fact that, that it was an algorithm, but that like this 
uh, juridical apparatus with the police and the judge involved um, has now decided that this threshold is acceptable. Uh, and that's the problem. Right. Like the problem isn't really the algorithm. And I, uh, I really value work um, by people like Sarah Hamid, for instance, who are working on uh, police abolition activism in, in the U.S., um, where, you know, it's become much more common now to say, you know, police shouldn't have access to facial recognition systems and so on. But uh, more importantly, as people like like Sarah Hamid point out, you know, even if you took the system away, the, 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 what you have left is not necessarily going to be good. Like the police system that's doing this sort of goofy evidentiary standard making, um, that's the important thing here. It's not really the algorithms. And, you know, some, some media theorists might say, well, the algorithms have a sort of authority. They have the authority of mathematics or whatever. But again, why does mathematics have authority? It's cultural. For the second half of this thematic episode on the social life of algorithms, Maithili and myself, Matt Barlow, connect across the waves with the brilliant and forever uplifting Tao Fan. Tao recently completed her PhD in media studies at Deakin University and has been instrumental in the flourishing of a renewed interest in STS across Australia over the past few years. Her work centers the gendered and racial underpinnings of algorithms with a focus on AI assistance, such as Google Home and Amazon Echo. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Tao as much as we did. Thanks for joining us, Tao. So one of the things that we noticed thinking about talking to you is that so much of what you do and how you got to doing what you do is like such a mystery to us. And I think it's always intriguing to learn how scholars who are in STS got to there. And so I'd love to hear about, for start to start us off, your academic lineage and what brought you to anthropology or STS or media studies and how you ended up researching AI. Thanks so much, Nathalie. I think the phrase academic lineage is a really funny one to use because it makes it sound like I've got like a pedigree, like I'm a racehorse or something. (laughs) You know, like I was bred to be in academia, like this was my destiny, but it really was not that at all. You know, this is not, this is not a path I knew I wanted to pursue, you know, growing up. Um, I didn't think I really knew how to be ambitious like that. And I think that's true for a lot of people, like unless you come from an academic family, academia is, is entirely mystifying. So I grew up in Canberra um, and the first degree I ever enrolled in was at the University of Canberra and I went there because it was the closest uni to my house. And it was the degree, the degree that I enrolled in was, funnily enough, uh, it was an advertising and marketing degree. Mm. Right on. Needless to say, advertising was not the right trajectory for me. And I actually quit that degree after the first year, restarted again, a new, a new degree, a double degree, which was in international relations and in media production. Actually, neither of which were for me either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as it turns out, I've got one of those meandering stories where I sort of just went searching for a home, I guess, and just kept looking till I found one. Advertising wasn't that place for me. International relations was definitely not that place for me. Media production, I find, was also sort of not quite that place for me. But having said that, it was still a really important journey to go on because I really credit that first year, that first year of doing that advertising degree for sharpening my critical skills, you know, because I sat in class every single day thinking, 
is this ethical? <laughs> you know, is this conscionable? Have I enrolled in a course essentially on the principles of propaganda? Uh, you know, this feels like bullshit to me. And because it was a really small uni, I'd sort of been, and I'd been bouncing around for some time. I got to know some of the tutors really well. I, I got to know some of the lecturers really well. And it was through that relationship that I started taking sort of more critical classes and gained a really solid foundation in things like media theory and media history and cultural studies and so on. Um, and it was only really after meeting those tutors and lecturers that were so um, encouraging that I thought actually I could maybe stay and, and keep studying longer. Um, because I didn't really grow up in one of those households where, you know, some people have those wonderful stories of like, as a child, I read every day and it was, I knew it was for me. And I always also wanted to write as well. I didn't really have one of those childhoods. <laughs> it was really, um, and I think it has a lot to do with sort of having a migrant background and where things like books like weren't around. Like my parents didn't model that kind of career for me. And I, didn't, I had an older sibling, but she also didn't sort of model reading and writing as a kind of profession that one could go into. So it wasn't it wasn't available to me as like something that I could imagine myself doing. After I finished my first sort of set of degrees, I spent some time overseas, I came back, and then as most Canberrans do, I ended up moving away. Um, and I ended up at the University of Melbourne in the media studies program to do my honours year. And I ended up writing my minor thesis on uh, Donna Haraway's Manifesto for Cyborgs, uh, a text that I was and am still am deeply obsessed with. Um, and that's really, that was my entry into feminist techno-science. You know, Haraway was my, my gateway drug. You're probably not alone there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think she's so, Har I don't think, I don't know how people find Haraway. I also sit and I think about, I don't know where, how that cropped up for me. That's the really sort of miracle thing about that text, that it's it resonates with so many people across so many disciplines, really draws you in. And it's not for a long time that I realised that she was writing from a tradition of thinkers, that she was situated herself in sort of a school of people or a field of people um, who were also doing similar work. I just thought she was just this, like, intellectual anomaly. <laughs> you know, and I think one of the reasons I knew that I had found my home was because I had... No, I really love Harriet. I love her work. And the first forest that I ever went to, she was just there giving a paper on a panel like any other participant. She wasn't a keynote. And she was a peer, you know. She was a peer. Yeah, exactly. And I, it just blew my mind to just be able to go to a conference and just see her presenting work in progress like everyone else. And it really, um, I suppose, broke down that mysticism for me was like that's all of a sudden things became imaginable to me that's so cool so it's almost like you know she was your gateway drug and your welcome mat yeah <laughs> gateway drugs and welcome mats um yeah I mean in a lot of ways yes I mean and she was so kind to me at that conference I went up and said hello to her I just put out a, a special issue in a graduate journal and manifested for cyborgs at 30 and I had emailed her about it and, you know, and she was very kind and was like, you know, thanks, this is really good. And I said I was going to that conference and I saw she was going to be there. She was like, great, just come say hello. And then I did and she was so generous and so kind and she really didn't need to sort of be so kind to a complete stranger who was obviously just like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how did you 
I mean, so you ended up in a kind of media studies department. How did you then encounter STS and anthropology and then sort of start doing research around AI and algorithms? I think unlike a lot of the anthropologists that you interview on your show, uh, I'm not one. (laughs) So um, uh, I come from a a totally different sort of disciplinary background to that. And I think only now, now that I've actually finished my what you might call formal training, is am I starting to experiment a bit more with what you might think of as anthropological methods, ethnographic methods. But none of those methods were with me during my PhD. I guess one of the things that I took away from that kind of early relationship with Haraway's writing was to think about how feminist theory could be used to critique. Um, and one of the things that I tried to do with my, in my PhD thesis was to, you know, use feminist theory to, to analyse and critique the way AI and gender are conceptualised and materialised together. So it was looking at the ways in which gender consistently figures and is figured by AI, you know, it aimed to demonstrate this across sort of a, a large number of sites in techno-scientific culture. So I was looking at um, the scientific histories of AI. I was looking at folks like Alan Turing and the Turing test. I was looking at the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence, which is one of the first meeting places where the term AI is coined. I was looking at representations of AI in popular culture, you know, films like Wally and Ex Machina. And I was also looking at consumer products, so digital assistants like Siri and Alexa. And on a macro level, I really wanted to argue that, you know, gender fundamentally constitutes how AI figures are made intelligible, you know, as subjects and as objects. You know, gender is what mediates expectations and makes the role of an AI clear to a user or a consumer or an audience. But that conversely, you know, as technologies are figured by gender, gender itself becomes codified and technologized. You know, gender becomes an artifice, this, this performative and imitative category that even a machine following the correct procedures can also enact. And in this way, you know, I wanted to show that it was not just gendered bodies that were at stake in algorithmic culture, but gender itself as a sociocultural system. So, and you're... In your essay, um, your prize-winning essay, Amazon Echo and the Aesthetics of Whiteness, which won the Nicholas C. Mullins Prize last year, you you talk a bit more about some of these ideas to do with gender and AI that you've just so beautifully explained to us. And you also really creatively and effectively put race and capitalism into the sort of gamut of things that you're looking at too. So can you tell us a bit more about how all of those things sort of play out in the materiality of Siri and Alexa. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know how you can look at those systems without looking at capital, to be honest, and capitalism. For sure. Um, yeah. These are not minor companies. These are the largest companies in the world right now. And so it feels like it would be remiss to not to not do that. You know, gender and gender theory and feminism, these are not minor terms anymore and these are not relegated just to, like, you know, sort of a few people. These are really mainstream ideas and I think companies are very mm, attentive to to appealing to them as well because at the end of the day, like, everyone is a potential consumer and why exclude anyone from that? And so what I'm really interested in when I'm looking at those things is how are they using gender in particular ways? 
How are they strategically deploying gender to do something? So I think a lot of the analysis around sort of series, like, oh, why is it, um, why is it gendered female? And a lot of the digital assistants, and I think this is true, why is the majority of them gendered female? And a lot of us academics, myself included, and I've written on this sort of go into these deep analyses on the interface, but I think uh, there's a risk there because we end up doing the work of, like, focus grouping for them we end up doing the work of marketing for them because we're saying we as we as consumers are not happy with the way that you've designed this and here are a set of Mm -hmm. uh, recommendations for how you can make it better and more comfortable for us Mm. and and you know big companies go great sure endlessly tailor the assistant as much as you like if it was up to google and apple and amazon they would endlessly tailor things for you you know we're living in the age of personalization it is possible for them to say, you know, every assistant could have a different voice for every house. If you wanted your, like, non-binary gendered, like, assistant, it's possible. Anything mm-hmm. to get you to, to smuggle, like, a little microphone into your house. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, could you maybe reflect a little bit on how just in your everyday life you've maybe your your research has changed the way that you interact with these assisted technologies or, or AI systems? Uh, I, it's, it's funny, for my birthday the other year, I was gifted a Google Home. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, uh, <laughs> I think it's a classic case of like, um, I think my friends deeply misunderstood <laughs> what I was, what I was studying. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and bless them they're just like no she really likes them <laughs> so she's I was, studying AI she's studying like, AI but, that dream <laughs> exactly but funnily enough I use it all the time I use wow, it all the okay, time cool. really yeah. because in my mind I mean this may be quite naive but it's just like look I've already got a Google account I couldn't be more enfolded in the infrastructure right now it wouldn't learn more from like whatever at home than it would learn from just like my emails. But I guess uh, in another way, on an everyday level, I use that technology to sort of counteract other ways with which I balance out media and technology in my life. So the nice thing about a Google Home is that it's because it is voice activated, you don't, you're not just spending your day staring at a screen when you interact with it. Unlike the rest of my day, especially now, which is just like, you know, the moment I wake up, I'm with a screen. I work, I'm at a screen. To relax, I sometimes look at a screen. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about Google Home is that you can just say, like, play music and I don't have to even look at my phone to make that happen. Or, or tell you're really selling it. <laughs> this is the advertising degree. <laughs> <laughs> On another level as well, I feel like it would be really hypocritical of me to critique without knowing you know, to critique Mm. from the outside. And ironically, that's a lesson I feel like I've learned from hanging out with so many anthropologists because anthropologists, like, you know, you have a field that is so historically murky, um, as many of us do, but I think you guys at least are attending to trying to resolve that. You at least acknowledge the murkiness of that history. Uh, and, and in a lot of anthropological practice and in a lot of the just sort of practice that I see in a lot of my friends who are anthropologists who work with sort of a community that isn't theirs, they have they hold that sense of responsibility. 
And so for me, it does feel, it, it feels wrong to sit from the outside and just say like, what kind of idiot would, you know, like <laughs> how uneducated about data do you need to be to have one of those things in your house? How could you? But it's just like, well, you know, like um, this is a Haraway lesson, right? The non-innocence of being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so The partiality. Yeah. The partiality. Yeah. Um, but that there is no, there's no pure position of critique that I can stand back and with my God's eye say that, you know, this is the right thing to do or this is not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. One of the questions we had for you was how do you study these technologies? And I think you sort of explained that a little bit um, when you were reflecting on your PhD research, but I'm wondering how that might be changing. You said you're sort of moving into more ethnographic methods maybe. So how is your relationship to the method of studying these these things changing and, and could you just reflect on some of those methods a little bit? Sure. Well, when I was doing my PhD, I was very, um, I, I think I was really committed to not going down the science in action route, which is to, to go into these places and interview these people and to see what they thought. Because for me, it was sort of like AI was kind of out of, the, out of the bag. It was already in action doing things in communities. And that's sort of where I wanted to be with it, rather than sitting with intention. And I thought it might be too easily folding into like, well, why aren't there more women here, which is not, not the question that I wanted to answer. And so my thesis was actually called Figures in the Making. And that title comes from Latour's, you know, science in action, science in the making, where he, for his method, he's outlining this, this in my mind, very creepy <laughs> stalkerish, where he's like literally you have to shadow scientists while they are engaged in the work of doing science. You must follow them around. You must go through the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and like capital S science is this thing that happens over there. And capital S science happens in a lab and you yeah. must gain access to that lab. Yeah. Um, mm. Whereas what was really pivotal for me, again, is another Haraway intervention in, in Modest Witness where she's talking about gender in the making and she really appropriates that science in the making phrase where she looks at, like, reductive readings of gender in narratives of scientific action. And she talks about why is gender always treated as just a question of reconstituted generic men and women? You know, why mm-hmm. are they always... Why is it always about biological or sexual differences playing out their their roles, but otherwise of no interest? Another way to think about gender is not about following preformed beings and examining either their presence or absence at the scene of scientific action, but rather treating gender as something that is also in the making while science is being made. Mm-hmm. Gendered ways of life. She talks about it. Co-constitution. So, yeah. Co-constitution. Right. Exactly. And so. I guess um, for me, when I look, if you take gender as a, as a site, you can't really do it in the way that Latour is saying. You know, he's saying he specifies a time and a place for studying science in action you know, in the lab before science is made. And for me, when it comes to something like gender, there is no single site of action, no pre-final moment. Gender is always in the making. It's always a dynamic relation constantly constituted through performative action so it can only ever be examined in this sort of in the making business right and you can then use that to also look at you know ai you know what okay well what if we think about ai as a science that is also never determined and never has a final moment 
you know, what if we understand it to be like gender that is also under construction and iteratively constituted? How does this change where we consider the site of scientific action to be? Mm-hmm. And that's really what I was trying to communicate with my thesis, really, by, you know, the six very different case studies, but for me it was holding them together and saying, you know, these are the sites of scientific action and that technological figures like AI, you know, they're not predominantly made in the lab. They're made across these multiple sites. Yes, definitely in scientific discourse, but also outside in popular culture, in commercial media and in other sites of daily life. Mm. So speaking, I guess, of things that are kind of always in the making, I want to ask you a little bit more about algorithms which you've called a social machine in one of your essays. And you've also examined Siri as a personable, personified algorithm. So can we talk a little bit more about how these sort of digital assistants are algorithms? Um, well, that's it's part of the materiality, isn't it? It's sort of um, they are fundamentally lines of code at the end of the day that are given a particular interface and the interface is the thing that we see as gendered often and the interface is the thing that we spend our most time interacting with but behind that there is a vast machine that is much more than a singular actor and even just to say algorithm as if it's a singular is so misleading Mm. to call say the google search algorithm a single algorithm is so misleading because there's often you know and it's really common practice um, in development to do sort of A-B testing where you have multiple iterations of the thing running at the same time or they're actually just like lots of nested algorithms sitting together that operate to do with certain things and they're constantly changing. So that's sort of, I guess, what I mean there. How would you describe the agency that algorithms have? Yeah, I don't know about, I don't know about agency. They definitely have power. But sometimes I wonder about agency. I think agency has um, is, is such a loaded term um, because I think it takes us too close into thinking about, like, what about the consciousness of the machine and what about the rights of the machine? Those conversations really irk me because, you know, they really go too far down that, like, post-humanist, transhumanist path because it's like, you know, there are people who don't have rights yet. <laughs> People whose work and labour are situated literally in the same machine that we're talking about, whose rights are still not acknowledged. And the more and more I think about sort of agency in the machine, the more I'm like, it's all about commodity fetishism. In that really classical Marxist term, mm. where um, the more, you know, when, we, when we're entranced by the splendour of an object, when we're entranced mm. by the splendour of a commodity, that we attribute to it this this independent agency and we forget that there's a whole set of relations, specifically labour relations, that condition that object, that's commodity fetishism. And that's for me is exactly what is happening with AI. When we sit and we are just obsessed with like, oh, it's talking on its own and it's we are so charmed by how uh, lovely and, and, you know, how the personality of the interface, we just completely forget that there is a whole set of relations behind that. And so sometimes, I mean, I worry about this with my work all the time. It's just like, when I, you know, we spend too much time looking at the interface and academics, we contribute to this. When we spend so much time looking at the politics of gender in the interface, when we could be looking at the politics of gender, the workers in the factories in Shenzhen who are like, Mm. meticulously putting these products together for us or 
the gender and like racialized relations of the people who are mining minerals or who are who are doing you know taking care of our e-waste and so on there are so many human agencies that are alighted when we talk about algorithmic agency that it doesn't feel like the right place to start to further some of those things that you were just mentioning are there are there metaphors or certain relationships or certain concepts that do kind of capture that potentially like something like infrastructure I'm thinking about yeah I mean I mean I said commodity fetishism just then has been incredibly useful for me and it's funny it's sort of the trend very much at the moment is so towards like new materialisms and I remember talking to Karen Barad about this because she's been like crowned this queen of new materialisms and she's like I just thought I was doing good old-fashioned materialism (laughs) 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 I I don't really get what's new about it and I'm kind of with her in that sense I'm also with her because I feel like um the the tools of old-fashioned materialism are still really good here um, mm. um, and that can still do us. I don't think it's necessarily about finding the new thing, the new turn about it's, you know, planting the new flag. There are plenty of good critical terms we have already in our arsenal that we can use. And I think it's that impulse to find the new thing that is part of the problem, particularly mm-hmm. in AI. <laughs> particularly in the in the cultures that I'm working with, this fetishization of innovation that spreads this mess all over the globe. For sure. Yeah, one thing that I really wanted to hear from you, Tao, um, is about how you came to be instrumental in this sort of growing burgeoning field of STS within Australia. Um, and how how you've sort of found your footing there or found your home there? Um, I didn't think sort of academia could be my home until um, I wandered into the right place. And for me, the right place really was the group at Deakin Uni at the moment with Tim Neal and Emma Koval, who I think we work on incredibly different objects of analysis. You know, Tim looks at mm. fire in Australia, Emma looks at um, genomics and race. But I think what we recognise sort of in each other is a common sort of sensibility and a common mm. approach to the way to ask a question, the way to answer a question, and we sort of uh, share that, that same sensibility really. And it's, that's how I see feminist STS altogether, to be honest. Um, you know, this sort of my feeling toward feminist SES is that it's not really a field per se and, like, why would we want to make it a field? It's, I've got a really great quote from Anne-Marie Moll I always revisit when somebody asks me about, you know, what is STS? Well, you know, why is it a field? Why are you in it? And she says, you know, why would we want to delineate and even mark a field? Worse, why even with boundaries? A lot of the good work in STS helps us to show that there are always leaks and, more importantly, interferences, that what happens in one site informs and shapes what happens in another. Oh, that's beautiful. Exactly. That's beautiful. Again, I guess it's like once you've found your foothold somewhere, and I was lucky enough to find my foothold, I think it's uh, you have a responsibility to sort of help others do so as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean I will say I, I don't think enough credit can really be given to someone like Emma and someone like Tim who are who really just so generously 
you know, gave so much to me to make me feel like I could do those kinds of things, to put together a workshop or put mm. together, a, you know, there's lots of small things sort of strung together. It was never this, like, grand vision of this is going to be we're gonna we're gonna do yep. it, people. We're gonna birth us, you know, SDS in Australia or whatever. I didn't, you know, it was sort of small things come together at all the time. You build a community, but it has only been possible for me through it being modelled by other people, through being modelled to me by like mentors like Emma and Tim. And it's funny, like, like I said, I really hate that term mentor, as if there's like mm. it's like the direction of learning is only one way. <laughs> like I'd like to think that they learn stuff from me too right but they understand that they're like in positions of power and I think there are a lot of people who don't understand that and I understand that like I'm not that senior but I have power too yeah absolutely one of the things I am certainly thinking about around this kind of conversation around power and community in academia is to do with the possibilities for furthering the kind of things that we care about idea-wise, collaboration-wise, community-wise, impact-wise, in ways that might not involve the academy at all? I mean, um, one of the nice things about OzSTS is that it's not totally institutionalised just yet. One of the, actually one of the benefits of STS in Australia is that there are no STS programmes. Yeah, right. Apply to. Not like in America, right? Or even parts of Europe and the UK where there are STS programs with these professors that they follow and and so on. And it's really institutionalized and really formalized in that way. Mm-hmm. Here we don't have that. Here we be- we don't even, we barely have like gender studies. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean our is Alas. under attack in lots of ways. But we don't have um, STS formalized within our universities. Actually, wait, wait, wait. That's that's not correct. I'm misremembering that. And I do think it's important to say now that this wasn't actually always the case. You know, there used to be an STS course at Deakin during the 80s and the 90s, which was run by people like Helen Moran and David Turnbull and David Wade Chambers. And it had this amazing focus on Indigenous knowledges and ways of knowing. And if I'm correct, I think it was one of the first courses to be offered online in Australia so it was really groundbreaking in a lot of ways yeah but it was cut yeah it was cut following university funding changes that saw you know this once supported interdisciplinary agenda totally be withdrawn and I think this is a moment that's like so incredibly important to remember right now for a lot of reasons you know, first, because it's just, it so clearly resonates with where we are at the moment, you know, where the university sector is in crisis and we're told we have to tighten our belts so these kinds of experimental and exploratory research agendas are at risk of being abandoned, you know, and they're at risk because because when we feel vulnerable, we immediately pull on this discourse of centre and periphery. You know, every university is doing this. My university certainly is. We don't have the capacity to support all research, just the core research. We can't protect all jobs, just the core jobs. And it is just so telling, you know, what gets classified as, as core and what is not. You know, right now we're seeing humanities and social science as being not core at all. Right now we're seeing the people who actually teach students, predominantly casuals and sessionals, they're not being classified as core at all which is ridiculous. Without, yeah. without teachers, what is a university? 
without programs like the humanities, is it still a university? And STS is one of those things that's been, you know, historically classified as periphery. I mean, I see the challenge right now. It's not so much about trying to move us to the centre, but to do to do what we do best, you know, to bring attention to the forces that insist that we need that dichotomy at all to begin with. <laughs> you know, and I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean... To be free in our home in the periphery. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, the second reason I bring this up as well is because, you know, I, I kind of, I mentioned the kind of freedom you have when you aren't anchored in a particular university structure or a rigid sort of structure, you know, as a network, as STS doesn't have to do some of the work that professional associations have to do. But this also means that we have no institutional memory, you know, that that event that I outlined in the 80s and 90s where there was this like harsh break, so much Mm. was lost. And like, I know, and really the only reason I know this stuff is because, um, because during forests in Sydney, they put through, uh, they, Alok Kandekar and Kim Fortune um, start curated an online exhibition called STS Across Borders and they invited people from sort of different countries to document, you know, the kind of STS that's been happening in their country. And Emma um, and I and another researcher called Ben Nicole uh, contributed to that online exhibition. Um, and we did things like, you know, pull on the old archives from um, David Wade Chambers and David Turnbull and Helen Byrne and we did interviews with them um, and we digitised a lot of their a lot of their curricula and all that stuff is up there now. Um, Amazing. On, yeah, yeah, it's at stsinfrastructures.org if anybody wants to find it um, and you can just search for Deakin cool. University. we'll have to put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Please do because it's not just... The history of Deakin that's up there, there's so many other great resources like STS in Turkey and STS um, uh, in different institutions in America, but also STS in India. I mean, it's so rich. Mm. Um, yeah, mm. and I really, really credit, you know, the hard work of Arlok and Kim putting it all together. And to bring some of those voices into, you know, the current moment of STS in Australia as well, you know, to have... Helen, you know, participate in a OzSTS program now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they we're so lucky that we've had this moment while they're still around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and while they're still enthusiastic and while they're still, um, you know, happy to travel and happy to do all things. You know, they've done their mm. time in the institution, you know. They could just mm. whatever, go and just sleep by the beach. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> But they're, they're so willing to give back and they're so engaged and they're so excited to see this community come alive again. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, I'm not the only one who's trying to do this. There's so much amazing work being done all over the country at the moment. I mean, Matt, you mentioned the top-end STS team was Michaela Spencer and Jen McDonald and Kirsty Howie, but there's so many people in Sydney like Carrie Lancaster and Declan Cush and Matt Cairns. You know, in New Zealand, where you are, Michaelie, mm. with Courtney, uh, Courtney Addison, Centre for Science and Society, and then Tari Appleton. And yeah. Matt, you're in Adelaide, but then also in um, Queensland, there's Nan Chaco and Jocelyn. But there's people all over the place. So many more who I haven't named. So many more who I haven't even met. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just the one who got to the Twitter handle first. <laughs> you, got, you got the juicy Twitter handle. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm, I'm so happy to see the community grow. 
I think other people are finding life in it too. So I feel really happy about that, that other people have found in it what I was looking for. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithili Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about us, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.